The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Now, coming up on today's programme, we're going to break down the latest jobs data with Bloomberg Economics' Dan Hansen in just a moment. Unemployment actually rose unexpectedly to 3.8% in the UK. But Lizzie, the number that stood out to me was all about strikes. Yeah, the UK's lost more than 3 million working days since industrial action escalated last summer. And the unions are planning another wave of protests in the weeks ahead. Three-fifths of the days lost in the last month were in the education sector. Yeah, a big, big problem if you've got uh, kids. And I think in these days of work from home, it's much more difficult if teachers are on strike than if perhaps, you know, the trains go on strike. So, you know, a big problem for lots of uh, households. Yeah, we know how to work from home. Yeah, exactly. That's easy these days. <laughs> um, separate NHS data show that just shy of 200,000 appointments had to be cancelled because of that four-day junior doctor strike last week. And that's likely to be an underestimate because many hospitals avoided booking appointments on those days. NHS England say that at the height of the walkout, the more than 27,000 staff uh, not at work last I know, week. it's totally staggering figures, especially when you then layer in the fact that Network Rail has uh, revealed that train delays will, are actually going to get worse over the next five years because of rising costs and funding. Going back to the education point, you know, the real concern also, I think, in the education sector is that people get out of the habit of going to school. It's not just about sort of work from home. Parents get used to having them there, and that's sort of really, really tricky. Um, but, yeah, also that the network rail and the strike action on trains is going to get more difficult. Yes, education, healthcare, transport, public services really... Uh, taking a bashing at the moment. And Lizzie, as well as the inconvenience from all of this, also showing up in some of the economic data as well. Yeah, in the GDP data last week, but also in the jobs numbers today. For a broader look at those numbers from the Office for National Statistics, we've got on the line our senior UK economist, Dan Hansen. Dan, we saw in the figures today that the labour market was tighter than expected. Why? So, hi. Hi, everyone. So, um, yeah, I think I think the thing... Thing to look at there were two things that struck me when when i when it sort of hit the wire at 7 a.m so the first thing that dropped was the unemployment number and i thought well that's actually a little bit higher than i expected we thought there was only 3.7 percent actually it was 3.8 percent but in the broad context of things that is still extremely tight there is you know there's still a lot of um demand there for workers we're seeing some easing of the supply constraints in the labor market which is some good news but the broad picture is still high degree of tightness in the labor market and then of course we saw these wage numbers which were surprising not only because of the scale of the revisions to the back data but also there was signs of renewed momentum in wage growth particularly in the private sector so i think those two things combined you bring them together jobs market is still pretty hot and against the backdrop of an economy that's 
holding up better than expected. And wage growth is proving very, very sticky. Yeah, that, that wage growth number, average earnings excluding bonuses, up 6.6% uh, in the latest three months on a year ago. Yeah, pretty punchy. Just dig down into that for, for us a little bit. How much of that is because of, of that tightness in the labour market? Yeah, so I think the thing to, to think about when you decompose wage growth and think about what, what's driven it, you know, you've got, you're right, the past tightness of the labour market affects pay growth today. So there's a lag there between the tightness, the tightening of the labour market and how that shows up in pay growth. There's also the expectation of workers and firms about prices and wages in the future. And that, of course, affects the bargaining process between workers and firms. And there's been a lot of evidence that that has been actually the key driver of the pickup in wages, that people are expecting higher inflation, so are bargaining for higher wages. And actually, I think there's a combination of the two in the UK, that combination of a very tight labour market, very high inflation, it puts workers in a strong position to bargain for for a bigger slice of the pie, essentially. So I think those are the things can, that can really explain it. And if you sort of run it through models, it's really that rise in expectations about future inflation that's been driving the pickup in wages in the UK. There's also the issue around who is active, who is economically inactive. So the, the numbers around economic inactivity fell. But when you look specifically at long-term sickness, which has been a, a big focus, that's now at a record high. The government has, has picked up on this and surely they must be incredibly concerned by this latest data. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And there is there are some signs that, it, that the... Um, the broader picture on participation is easing and inactivity is falling. But you're right, Caroline, that that is a is a real issue here in the UK. We've got we've got these two sort of factors at play. We've got the long term, the long term sickness story, and you've also got the early retiree story. And the government is, has done, we saw in the budget, the government has made some attempt to sort of address this. But if you look at what the OBR said about how much of an impact these policies could have, they're likely to be pretty small, and I, I sort of share that sentiment. So I think it's a very difficult thing um, to um, deal with from a policy perspective, both the long-term sickness and early retirement. And it's really difficult to change, you know, bring people back in when those are the two reasons why, back into the labour market when they're the two reasons why um, inactivity has risen in the first place. So if you take all this together and it looks like the labour market's tight, tighter than expected do you still think that february's upside inflation surprise was just as you put it down a blip we get the inflation data tomorrow do you still think it's going to fall into single digits for march yeah 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 so that that i mean the way to think about it is that the economy performs in a certain way that feeds through to the labor market that affects wages and then ultimately that affects inflation so what we will see tomorrow in the inflation data is a reflection of something that happened in the economy and labour market maybe a year even further back. So I think when you look at this today, uh, the, the the CPI data tomorrow, I should say, you'll, you'll be getting some information about what happened in the past. There'll be a little bit of information about what's happened with energy prices as well. But we are still expecting a fall. To go directly to your question, we're expecting a fall to 9.8%. I think what we found out today, though, with the labour market data is what might happen to inflation further down the line. And it it kind of speaks to the view that, yes, inflation will fall this year because of what we know about base effects on the energy side, and we've had a fall in wholesale energy costs as well. But actually, when you look, strip all that out and you get to the underlying picture, 
it's still very sticky and the pay growth numbers today are likely to mean that it, it remains sticky going forward. Now, Dan, uh, just less than a month now until the next Bank of England rate decision. The market was already expecting another uh, quarter point rise in interest rates, but but you weren't. So you've now changed your call on this, haven't you? Yeah, we have. So, you know, the bank has set out its its framework for thinking about the data that's coming up. And it's looking so quite clearly, it's been looking at private sector, or it is looking at private sector pay growth. It's looking at services inflation. Um, and it's looking at, at, the, at the labor market more generally. And I think if you if you look at today's, we've got CPI tomorrow, but if you look at today's data, it's such a big surprise, I think, relative to what we were thinking, to what consensus was thinking, and I think to what the Bank of England would have been thinking as well, although it's not completely clear what their forecast would have been. I think it's very hard to see them not responding to this in May now um, with, a, with another quarter point hike. Um, as I say, we'll get some the inflation data tomorrow and they'll be watching the services inflation print. But I think going back to my previous answer, the fact that we're getting this pickup in this reacceleration, if you like, in pay growth and evidence of that in the underlying data, that will worry a bank, the bank about what's going to happen to inflation further out. And remember, that's what mm. they're worried about. They're worried about the picture sort of two years ahead. There's nothing they can do with interest rates now that will affect inflation today. Okay, so then for listeners who are sort of concerned around rates, where do you think interest rates in the UK are going to peak? We've had, what, 11 rises in, in a row. Do you think it's going to be around September? That seems to be the expectation for most people that that's when rates will peak in Britain. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. I mean, we think now we, we've added a hike to our path. So our peak is now 4.5%. I think the market is peaking at 4.75%, but that's a slow rise from May up to September um, in market pricing. So there's one more hike over the over the summer essentially being priced in. Um, I think one reason to think that May might be a point at which the bank stops is that two two or three weeks, I think it's two weeks after the bank, um, the bank will release its forecasts and give its May decision on May the 11th, you'll get the May CPI, the April CPI data that is obviously released in May. And in that, you'll get a very big fall in inflation, two percentage points, two and a half percentage points. And that, as I say, is a mechanical thing. But I think it's something that the bank will be able to hang its hat on and say, look, and it's something that Bailey has been speaking about, this sort of fall in inflation um, that will take take hold. He's mentioning spring and sort of push that out a little bit to the summer, but that will be the first point at which they can really point to the inflation data and say, "Look, this thing is starting to come down." So we've still got a, we've got a peak of four and a half percent in our forecast, a little bit lower than market expectations. But I think if the inflation data does move favourably in this mechanical way that seems almost is baked in, mm-hmm. um, I think that'll give them room to pause. Yeah, it's not the news that people want to hear when we also saw real incomes falling again in the latest data. I just want to come back to strikes, Dan, because we saw in the numbers today 348,000 working days lost to strikes in February. It's up from January. And we already saw the hit to GDP from strike action in February. The economy, of course, only flatlined. Do you expect the more more of the same is coming down the pipeline if strikes continue and you've got the Royal College of Nursing threatening to continue industrial action until Christmas? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good question. I think what we've seen is, as you say, you've had the rise in the number of working days lost um, between January and February. And I think it's likely that you'll get another increase between February and March, which will again impact 
the GDP figures. I think interestingly, the Bank of England is probably looking for something like that as well, because it's maintained quite a downbeat view about the first quarter. It still thinks the economy will contract. We think um, output will, will rise by a little bit. But I think the thing to remember is that if the number of strike days stays the same, say it stayed the same from February throughout the rest of the year, the level of output would be suppressed because obviously fewer, fewer, fewer work, fewer working hours are taking place. Um, but it won't continually hit the growth rate of the economy. You, what you need to see there is that more strike days are happening from month to month and, and increasing uh, mm -hmm. month to month, and that would suppress the growth rate and continue to hit push down on the level of GDP. So, yes, the level of GDP has been suppressed by the strikes. It, we don't think it's a huge impact. But it, it, admittedly, it, it has been bigger than we we initially thought it would be, um, and you know it gives it gives the prime minister and the chancellor some food for thought. Certainly, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. That's Dan Hansen, our senior uh, UK economist. Interesting thoughts uh, on the uh, economic impact of all those strikes. Well, of course, one way that the government's trying actually to address economic ac activity is by expanding childcare provision. This was another addition to the chancellor's last budget. Uh, the Prime Minister, though, has found himself in some hot water around this issue. I will um, uh, refer to the Daily Star. The headline here is <laughs> Dishy, Rishy, Fishy. More seriously, though, it's that the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, Daniel Greenberg, has reportedly opened an inquiry into whether the Prime Minister properly declared his wife, Akshata Murthy's, minority stake in a childcare business here in the UK, um, familiar to many, many parents, Koru Kids. So this is the investigation that, that we reported. Yeah, look, it's not likely to pose a major threat to the Prime Minister, but it is a distraction from his rhetoric about competent government. But on the childcare policy itself, I want to bring in Bloomberg's UK economy reporter Lucy White. She reports today that UK nurseries say the plan to increase free childcare hours is, quote, unworkable. Lucy, thanks for being in the studio with us. Why unworkable? So this is some research that we've heard from the National Day Nurseries Association. And what they're basically saying is that their members are telling them it's great that we're getting extra funding. It's great that we're seeing childcare being uh, free childcare being expanded to one and two year olds, but at the same time, the funding level probably isn't going to be enough for them to actually expand. And they're they're facing so many, uh, so, so much trouble with hiring staff and trying to find the premises to to fit these um, nurseries into, that it's unlikely to actually make much difference. Um, so, for example, uh, thirty five percent of nurseries don't think that that the these um, measures suggested in the budget are actually going to lead to more ch more children being in their setting. 75% um, of nurseries, for example, already have a waiting list for one and two year olds before you even start giving them, uh, you know, before you even start extending free um, childcare to those those ages. OK, I, I mean, I will reflect the frustration of parents up and down the land then. I mean, this was sold as a sort of big idea to to solve the issue of exorbitantly high childcare costs in Britain. Mm -hmm. It was going to give free hours, even though I think one can take issue with the idea of free because it's not always no. free at the point of, of delivery. It's, it's a subsidy by government to nurseries, actually, for those extra hours. So why does this... Why is it so limited, then, as it... As it uh, turns out. I think you've just got to look at it in the context of Jeremy Hunt being very constrained in the amount of money he's able to spend at the moment. You know, um, he's the, the the measures that he has set out are only kind of you know looking at 
paying salaries at the current level. Obviously, it's not taking into account any rise in in salaried level. And at the moment, you know, there's a lot of cross subsidisation that goes on with the younger one and two year olds. You know, parents are paying fees that are higher for those one and two year olds to cross subsidise the government fees that are being paid for the three and four year olds. And when you start paying, when the government starts paying for the one and two year olds as well, you don't have the flexibility to be able to charge those higher fees anymore. So a lot of nurseries, perhaps if they if they do take on the, the, the free hours, are going to find it harder to make ends meet. Incredible stat from the National Day Nurseries Association. They say that uh, 40% of nurseries say that the estimate that they're losing £2.31 for every hour of uh, childcare is an underestimate. Mm. So you wonder how these nurseries are continuing in, in business. W- what is it that they would like to see? Is it as simple as a load more money? They, a load more money, would, I'm sure, would help. But I mean... It- a lot of them want to see a workforce strategy is what they're saying you know they want to uh, be able to hire they want more freedom to be able to hire but of course you need to look at how you're attracting people to the profession you need to look at the qualifications people are expected to have um, you know in, in some cases you need to look at the amount of um, children per worker you know the ratio of how how many people uh, how many children mm. these these workers are able to look after. Um, and, you know, uh, the chief executive of the NDNA actually said to me, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, workers are seeing better uh, pay and better conditions at a supermarket than a nursery. So, you know, why would you do it? Mm. Well, what a question to end on. Lucy White, thanks for being with us in the studio on the state of childcare. Well, yesterday, the City Minister, Andrew Griffiths, told us that they're working on reforms to capital markets, which will make it a more attractive place to list. Of course, this is a big problem uh, for the City of London in in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. It includes companies like the battery manufacturer Amti Power, which listed on London's AIM back in 2021. Uh, So, uh, Bloomberg Tom McKenzie and I spoke to the CEO of Amti Power a little earlier this morning, Alan Hollis. We asked him, of course, in the face of these huge US subsidies for green technology surely that would be just too tempting to reject we're now at the stage of commercialization and planning significant investment in in gigafactory scale production and as part of that process of course we have to consider all the options that we've got available i have to say we've been very well supported by the uk government and the scottish government over over the you know previous years in helping us develop the technology But now, as we're talking about scaling up, the quantum of investment required, you know, goes to a completely different level. And like many businesses, you'd expect us to be looking at, you know, the the, the options that are available. We are a British company who have developed the technology in the UK. We want to build our our gigafactory at our preferred site in Dundee. But... um, you know, as a matter of course, we must consider all of the options, and in particular, the uh, you know the benefits that appear to be provided by the Inflation Reduction Act mm. in the US. Alan, very interesting. Thank you for joining us this morning. So it sounds like, just can correct me if I'm wrong, you have yet to make that decision and that firm commitment on Dundee. If you haven't, what do you need to see to kind of move the dial and to lock that in for Dundee? We need to continue the discussions with um, you know with the Scottish government, you know, and the UK government. Um, to, to look to see how we can provide the a comparable level of um, support and incentives uh, that are available to the uh, in, you know provided by the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you know, I'm sure and I'm very hopeful that we can get there. 
But it just seems that the UK at the moment is, um, you know, significantly behind you know, the, the US, you know, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act came out in August last year. The, um, you know, the EU's green industrial deal, you know, came out in February this year. And yet we're still waiting for a, a, a strong strategy uh, and support proposal to come out of the, uh, the UK government. And that's that's, you know, only promised in September. You know, so the time for all of these, uh, you know, planning cycle for a business like ours is long. And the more surety and security that we can have in terms of making our investment decisions, you know, the better it is. So the time to act is now. OK, how close are you really to a gigafactory in Britain? The collapse of British Vault after years um, was a significant blow, although kind of long expected in some ways, I think. How close are you to actually creating something for the UK, you know, a gigafactory? It, it takes time to develop the technology, um, to, to plan a gigafactory scale production, and then to implement and, and build that facility and to ramp it up to, to full scale production. Um, you know, we are confident in our plans. Um, you know, we've... Um, we, but, we've but give uh, me a ballpark, Alan. Is that five, 10, 20 years? Um, you know, g- give me something oh, to go oh, on. Oh, no, it's, it's you know, it's close to the five-year timescale, um, you know, because, you know, you, we all see on the news and in everything that we read that the, um, you know, the demand for um, batteries, whether it's to provide power for electric vehicles or whether it's to, to capture renewable energy that's created by wind and solar. Those markets are just growing and growing and growing and they're essential in the, you know, to, to support our, our drive to, to, to net zero. And, you know, we're not thinking of putting a, a gigafactory, you know, getting it up and running in, in 20 years time, far from it. You know, it's, it's the five year timescale that is, um, is, is what we're working to. The Chancellor um, has already made it quite clear that the UK can't possibly go toe-to-toe with the US or even with Europe when it comes to subsidies. Is that the drive here? Or is it perhaps to you know prepare for, a, if there is, let's say, a Labour government in a couple of years' time, to get them to get an industrial strategy right? What, what is your response? Uh, well, we, you know, as, as I've said previously, it's all about time. You know, the time to act is now. Um, because there's no question that as a country we're facing competition from other nations and other regions, you know, particularly in electric vehicles and energy storage. Um, but you know, in the UK, we we in the UK we have the potential to support these requirements. But we do need the government to to support supporters to develop the industry to help on help meet the environmental goals because that's the key driver in everything we're doing. And, and the next important point is, is, is about creating security of supply, because if we want to grow and maintain these industries, we have to invest and we have to have a clear strategy. We have to encourage inward investment, which ultimately creates the jobs, the highly skilled jobs mm. that, that we're looking to do. You know, so this is an investment for, for any government, whether it's Conservative or Labour. Alan, on the question of jobs, we, we had uh, wage growth pictures, wage growth inflation coming out stronger than expected today in terms of some of the some of the data, UK employment data. Uh, how challenging is it to, to find to find skilled workers for your kind of business? Are you seeing any signs that it's becoming easier? What is the what is the picture when it comes to attracting and retaining staff? 
Well, we're investing heavily in retaining staff and growing and developing our own internal team wherever we can. But as we're a rapidly growing business, we do need to, to bring people into our organization. And that is a challenging thing to do because, you know, Again, you know, we need to create and support the industry, which then encourages people to, you know, to to go into the industry, you know, to go into the university system or, or through apprentices, apprenticeships to learn the skills who then come out and we can then employ. Um, uh, but you need the industry there in the first place. My fear is that uh, with the, you know, the lack of action from the government at the moment, you know, we potentially see, um, you know, companies in the sectors that we're operating migrating to other parts of the world because the um, you know the financial models are better there so that was Alan Hollis the CEO of anti power speaking to me and to Tom McKenzie earlier on Bloomberg radio look pressing the absolute need for an industrial strategy now in the UK so that Britain can reach its green goals and you know create jobs keep up with uh, the US and Europe and be energy independent I thought it was a really interesting interview yeah so much money flooding into these green technologies in the US and increasingly uh, in Europe as well uh, I want to bring you an update on another politics story we've been following that's uh, an update on in the investigation into the funding and finances of the SNP party treasurer Colin Beatty who's also an MSP has been arrested by Police Scotland and taken into custody to be questioned by detectives. Now, B2 is SNP treasurer for 16 years until 2020 before being beaten in an internal election. The man who beat him quit after saying that he'd not received the support or financial information needed to carry out the job. Beatty then returned to the role. The rest, of course, comes two weeks after former SNP chief executive Peter Morell, Nicola Sturgeon's husband, was also arrested. He was later released without charge pending further investigation. So we'll keep watching this story. Yeah, the other thing I've been watching from Scotland is the idea from the new SNP uh, leader, the First Minister, Humza Yusuf, to have 44% income tax on anyone earning more than £75,000 above the border. Merrin Somerset Webb, our columnist and podcaster, she says, that seems like a bad idea. She says this on Twitter. People will just go to England and pay 40%. Mm, there's already quite a big tax gap, isn't there, with Scotland for, for sort of what would you call them, upper middle earning earners, I suppose. People who probably don't consider themselves rich. Uh, but yeah, that, that gap has been expanding over the years. So yeah, in- interesting debate. Yeah, no, absolutely. One to watch the issue around uh, tax. Look, that's all we've got time for, though, for today. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.